One of the lessons I've learned in martial arts is that standing still is asking to be hit. If you stand still in business, your competition is gonna catch up. I start each morning practicing martial arts because it brings me balance and focus. And I wanna know how others stay motivated as well. So join me for conversations on business, innovation, and entrepreneurship. I'm Dan Schulman. Welcome to Never Stand Still. Hi, everybody. I'm Dan Schulman, president and CEO of PayPal, and welcome to another episode of Never Stand Still. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Alfonso David. Uh, Alfonso currently serves as the president of the Human Rights Campaign. He's the first civil rights lawyer and the first person of color to serve as president of the HRC in its nearly 40-year history. Alfonso has been at the forefront of the movement for LGBTQ uh, plus equality for more than a decade now, and he's worked both at the state and the national level. In 2015, uh, he was appointed by New York Governor Andrew Cuomo uh, to serve as counsel and principal legal advisor to the governor. And in this role, he's functioned as the governor's chief counsel, um, and he's managed really most, uh, if not all, of the significant legal and policy deliberations that have affected New York State. He was also both the first black person and the first openly gay man to serve as chief counsel to the governor of New York. And as Alfonso has put it to me, uh, and we've gotten to know each other uh, over the course of the last year or so, he's focused on getting people invested in the struggle for equality, a goal that is so relevant uh, in these times uh, that we live in. Um, he was kind enough to join me. Um, earlier this year, actually, when we could all be together in one place and talk to an audience of people. And he came into PayPal uh, as part of our celebration of uh, Black History uh, Month. Uh, and really, we had a fascinating conversation then. So, Alfonso, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show. And thank you for taking the time to be with us. Thank you. Thank you, Dan, for having me. Yeah, you bet. So, Alfonso, um, before I start into some of the questions, you know, one of the things that um, really struck me uh, when we had our conversation uh, together in New York City was your life story. It is really um, quite arresting, you know, when you hear it, like you sit up and you're like, wow, that is... Uh, is a story that you would see out of a movie, uh, much less somebody's life. Could you maybe give our audience a little bit of your background um, and how you got to where you are? And then we'll go into all of your uh, current um, uh, doings today. Sure, sure. So my great, great, great grandfathers uh, were slaves in Arkansas and Mississippi. And they left the United States to go back to Liberia. 
And uh, my parents were both born and raised in Liberia. It's a country in West Africa. And they came to the United States for school. And when they were here for school, uh, they had me. Uh, they left when I was a year old uh, to return back to Liberia after they finished their studies. And my father ran for political office. He ran for mayor of Monrovia, which is the capital city. My uncle at the time, William Talbert, ran for president. Uh, they both won. And I lived a very unique, privileged existence for a while until 1980, when there was a military coup. And the military coup resulted in my uncle being assassinated, my father being arrested and incarcerated, and we were placed under house arrest. Um, we had to leave our homes. Uh, troops came and they looked to kill us. And uh, we were able to jump out of the bathroom window uh, to escape. Uh, but they ultimately caught up with us and arrested my father and placed us into um, house arrest. And we were under house arrest for several years. And once we were released, my father sought asylum in the United States. Because I am a US citizen, uh, it certainly helped his application. And we were able to return to the US. My brother is also a US citizen. My sisters are not. And my family was split up for about two years where my mother and my youngest sister stayed in Monrovia and the rest of us came to the US. And then we were ultimately we reconciled um, a few years later and then lived in the suburbs of DC. Uh, and then I decided to pursue law as opposed to medicine, which is what I was focused on as a kid and uh, ultimately college and then law school, clerked for a federal judge and then the rest is history. Um, but uh, it is, it's been quite a journey. It is an unbelievable history uh to bring to uh to your current role right now because you've seen so much uh of history unfold and different um uh administrations come into into place and ways of dealing with the ramifications of different movements that happen mm -hmm. and here you are president of the human uh, rights campaign. You've been doing that for, I think, about the past year uh, or so. Can you talk a little bit about why you decided to take that role? And what are some of the goals that you have um, uh, for the organization? You know, it's interesting, Dan. I was not looking for the opportunity. They often say the opportunity shows up when you're not looking, and that's exactly what happened to me. I was serving as the governor's chief counsel, received a phone call expressing interest, and we started having the conversation. I took the opportunity seriously once I really took a step back and appreciated the scope and the breadth of the organization itself and the opportunities that it presents to affect real, long-lasting, sustainable change. And for me, I took this job because we are living in a time, and I don't just want to identify the United States as being the only country, we're seeing it in other parts of the world, Poland, Russia, and other places, where regressive policies are being implemented and marginalized communities are being further marginalized. And after living the past three and a half years under the current federal administration, 
I saw this as an opportunity to really use my skills to fight for people who are marginalized. My goal has been to redirect our focus on people who are multiply marginalized, because those are the folks that unfortunately are hit not once, not twice, but in some cases, three <coughs> times by policies that just disregard who they are. So a black man living with HIV without any access to healthcare living in the South, an immigrant who is being persecuted in his, her, or their own home country, seeking asylum in this country, but being turned away. A transgender woman who is black, uh, limited opportunities for employment, and is facing devastating rates of violence in this country, right? How do we redirect our focus on people who are multiply marginalized? Because if we think about the concept of equality, right, we always talk about equality. Yep. You cannot achieve equality by focusing on the haves. You can only achieve equality by focusing on those who are marginalized. Because that is the only way you will be able to really understand the underpinnings of oppressive systems and overturn them for long-standing sustainable change. So I took this job with the goal of doing that, redirecting our focus so that when we talk about priorities, when we talk about policies, we're focusing on people who are multiply marginalized in the quest of full equality, in the quest of achieving liberation. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting, you took the job a year ago, you probably never imagined then that we would be in the midst of maybe three or four trends that I don't think any of us could have predicted. You know, we're in the middle of a, of a health crisis that has spiraled into an economic crisis. I think that has spiraled into a psychological crisis where we are all at home we are much more thoughtful and reflective maybe than ever before um, about the state of the world around us. And that uh, health crisis and that economic crisis and that psychological crisis have unveiled issues that have always been there, but have been long simmering uh, or have been conveniently ignored. And then you have the explosion of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, of uh, really a second era of civil rights justice uh, happening um, in ways that, you know, are finally revealing the extent and the depth of despair that have been there. And, um, you know, I have seen here at PayPal just the uh, amount of emotion, you know, and sometimes despair, and oftentimes a lot of determination um, and confusion, uh, exhaustion around all of this. And um, um, this sort of most acutely felt, obviously, by our Black colleagues here at PayPal. And um, I'm wondering, at this moment in time, as you talk about these marginalized communities and the intersection of that, of both the LGBTQ communities as well as the black communities. How are you seeing your role today and, uh, and the ways that um, those intersect and uh, maybe have become more relevant than ever before? 
I see my role as forcing us or challenging us to think about identity in a much more intersectional way than we have in the past. Uh, and this happens in all contexts. This happens in the corporate context. This happens in government. This happens in the not-for-profit sector, where people are asked to leave their identities at the door. In some cases, you leave your queerness at the door. You leave your race at the door. You leave your gender at the door because we've created, in, we've created systems that don't allow people to have their identities all respected. And we create this false hierarchy of identity in this country where for some people, my race is more important than my sexual orientation. And I reject that principle. My sexual orientation is just as important as my race. And I want to live and work in environments that embrace both of my identities. So I see my role here as running the largest LGBTQ civil rights organization in the world to get people to see beyond themselves and recognize all of our, the identities that we carry are entitled and deserving of respect and value. When we say equal protection under the law, right, we should not create this hierarchy. I know the court has done that in terms of the equal protection analysis, not to get too lawyerly, but uh, you know, when we think socially, when we create our systems in government or our systems in business, we should create those systems that are welcoming of all types of identities. The murders of black men and women in this country is not new. Unfortunately, they are now being recorded. And like you said before, um, this is had a disproportionately negative impact on black people in this country that have been living this reality for more than 400 years. So I wanna make sure as we talk about equality, as we talk about liberation, we see the intersectionalities. We can't say black lives matter without saying black trans lives matter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. More than 180 transgender people have been killed in this country since 2013, 180. Yeah. 180, this year alone, we're more than, a than 20. So we have to appreciate that intersectionality. We have to translate it into something practical when we talk about advocacy and we talk about implementing systems that we live in. Yeah. I, uh, we saw a little bit of that firsthand when we pulled out of North Carolina uh, because of the bathroom bell. And um, um, it was shocking to me to really see the reactions uh, to that. Um, both um, a lot of overwhelmingly positive reaction from customers, but death threats as well that came my way uh, as a result for withdrawing. And um, I think that was the first time where we um, realized that if your values are about inclusion, you need to stand up for them. And that's not always an easy thing. And, you know, we also live in a time in, the, in this current administration where a lot of various rights are um, uh, being called into question. Uh, there was recently a bill um, that was just introduced, um, I think the Department of Health, um, that kind of strips away anti-discrimination uh, protections, 
Can you talk a little bit about that? Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing and maybe how uh, others can be involved uh, in that effort? Sure, sure. So you're referencing the Department of Health and Human Services, yeah. which is a federal agency. And they issued a new set of regulations interpreting uh, non-discrimination protections under the Affordable Care Act. So the Affordable Care Act, as everyone knows, is a piece of legislation that was passed by Congress, signed by President Obama. And the goal is to provide health care, access to health care to as many people as possible. In the statute itself, it talks about non-discrimination. You can't discriminate on the basis of sex. The Department of Health and Human Services has interpreted that to include you can't discriminate on the basis of sex stereotyping and gender identity. The Trump administration has now changed that interpretation to say that LGBTQ people are no longer protected from discrimination under the Affordable Care Act, which is blatantly discriminatory and illegal. So the human rights campaign has sued the Trump administration for violating both federal law as well as the US Constitution. Uh, they are creating a paradigm where LGBTQ people could be denied healthcare by a health clinic, by a doctor, by a nursing home, simply because they're LGBTQ. That's inconsistent with the spirit of the Affordable Care Act, and it is not supported under law. They are exceeding their legal authority. They're trying to redefine the statute and what the statute means with this regulation. And that's why we've sued. I would say people can get involved by helping raise awareness of this issue, make sure that people understand how important this is, because this is not only about the regulation issued by the Department of Health and Human Services, right? This is about whether or not our democracy is working and whether or not the federal government is exceeding its legal authority to reinterpret the law and act as authoritarian uh, dictators in this country. So we are pushing back. In addition, we will be working with corporations to see if they want to get involved, submitting amicus briefs. Uh, this case will ultimately go, uh, we filed in federal court, it will ultimately, uh, I believe, be appealed given the Trump administration's record. And we want to make sure that we get as many people involved as possible. Yeah, oh, I'm sure we will be a part of that amicus brief um, uh, with you. So uh, thank you for fighting that fight. And uh, and I hope many people join uh, in that. You're also um, doing something uh, with Stacey Abrams uh, right now. I believe it's called Fair Fight, which I think ties in exactly to what we were just saying, which is, look, um, the best way of exercising our right um, and uh, and our freedom in a democracy is to exercise our right to vote. Um, I don't think anything could be more important, although there's a lot of voter suppression that happens, um, especially in Black communities, the LGBTQ community, really other low-income uh, neighborhoods. And, um, you know, getting out, getting the uh, mobilizing nothing could be more important for our democracy. Can you tell me a little bit about the partnership uh, with Fair Fight um, and uh, how you're thinking about this? Because we certainly are working hard uh, as well with a number of other organizations to get out the vote because uh, we can't think of anything really more important as we come into uh, November. 
Dan, I could not agree more. This is, we have a fundamental right in this country. It doesn't exist everywhere in the world. Yep. We have you a know that firsthand. Yes. We have a fundamental right to vote, and that can't be taken away from us. And we should take that fundamental right extremely seriously. Um, and this, I believe, is the most consequential election of our lifetimes because this is not only about ideology, right? This is about um, ideology within the context of democracy. This is really whether or not we will have a democracy moving forward. And we entered, the human rights campaign entered into- That's an interesting way of putting it, by the way. Yeah. It really is when you think about it, right? This is not about Republican or Democrat or independent within the context of democracy. This is, will you have a democracy tomorrow? Will you have a democracy next year? Because the Trump administration has strategically chipped away at the fundamental pillars that supports our democracy. When we start questioning whether or not the Department of Justice is fair and is going to be investigate claims with an open view and be divorced from the political ideology of the president or the political whims of the president, we've lost that. When we question a CNN reporter interviewing uh, protesters and is being arrested simply for interviewing protesters. Um, I mean, these, these principles that are outlined in our constitution that support the democracy that we live in are being threatened. And that's what this election is about. Um, and so we have to exercise our right to vote. We entered into a partnership, the Human Rights Campaign with Stacey Abrams uh, to look at voter suppression all over this country, focusing on the 20 battleground states. And this is not new. Black people, Latinx people, LGBTQ people have faced voter suppression all over this country. We saw this recently in Wisconsin. We saw this in Georgia. What happened in Wisconsin? People woke up to go to vote on primary day only to find out that the polling stations in their neighborhoods were closed. And guess which neighborhoods? Minority neighborhoods mm -hmm. in Georgia. They faced long lines. The polling uh, stations were broken. They didn't have enough poll workers. Absentee ballots had not been returned. This is a concerted effort to suppress the vote of black and brown and marginalized communities. And it's been happening for a very long time. So we want to get as many people involved in the effort to get as many people registered to vote and understand the implications of not voting for this election. Uh, we have a, a campaign called Vote Equal, Vote Safe. And that is pushing Congress to pass legislation to provide funding to states so that they can provide other alternatives to in-person voting. There are only five states in this country that allow uh, vote by mail. Yeah. Right? So that has to change. If you have COVID-19, if you have a weakened immune system, if you're elderly, if you have other challenges with voting, you shouldn't be forced to go to the polling station, especially yeah. this election. Yeah. Well, you won't be able to go to the polling station. I mean, that's just, I mean... That's just a fact. And so we do need to address that. I think, you know, the other thing that um, uh, I've read is, unfortunately, uh, a lot of our younger population is very disillusioned with the system. Mm -hmm. But we can't let that uh, disillusionment stop us from being agitated about voting, um, because that is the way to 
exercise your voice. Of course, there are many other ways, but it is a incredibly powerful way to exercise your voice. And uh, um, I really admire uh, what you're doing with Stacey Abrams. And uh, um, and there are a number of corporations right now that are going to give, including PayPal, paid time off in other ways to make sure and maybe even bring polling stations into the workplace so that we can really assure that everyone who desires to vote can vote. Um, uh, and Dan, one, one additional point that you raised, which I think is very important. Uh, you said some young people may be disillusioned yeah. about voting. And to the young people, I say this. This election, in every election, is not about one position. It is not only about the presidency. It is not only about the U.S. Senate and making sure we have pro-equality candidates in the Senate so we can pass legislation to protect marginalized communities. It is not only about the House of Representatives where we have to hold on to those seats. It's also about the mayor. Mm -hmm. It's also about the city council. Guess who appoints the police chiefs in cities? Mayors. Guess who oversees the budgets for police departments? City councils. So if you are incentivized and mobilizing to make sure we address racial justice in this country, using your vote to make sure you are supporting candidates for office, city council and mayor will be huge in affecting that change. Even if you're not that excited about the presidential race, you should exercise your right to vote because it will also make a significant difference in your hometown. Yeah, it's a great point. It's a great point. Fonzo, let me uh, end uh, this great conversation um, with a question that, you know, there are probably 10,000 examples that you can uh, uh, come up with on this. But really, this whole idea of never stand still is that all of us in our lives get knocked down. Um, And nobody has had a career or aspirations that are straight upwards and to the right. Um, It is just always recovering from different things. And I know you've had many uh, experiences that have been very difficult for you. Um, What I'd love to understand from you are what are some of the lessons you've learned from all of that? And how could our viewers really take away kind of where do you come up with the strength and the courage and the conviction to keep getting back up? Because it's inevitable you're going to be knocked down. But like, <laughs> that's not always a, an easy thing to do. And maybe um, some lessons for the people who are watching us would be, I, I think, especially from you, would be really impactful. So I wake up every day at 530 and I work out. Uh, running, rock climbing, biking, yoga, whatever I do. And it's an opportunity for me to relieve stress and also for me to be somewhat introspective about where I'm going and why. Uh, You are absolutely right. I've been knocked down many times in my life and I get back up. I get back up because I think about my purpose. Why am I here? Mm -hmm. What am I supposed to do? Um, And I ask myself that question because we all are here for a reason. Regardless of your religious views, hopefully your spiritual views, 
I think that we're here for a reason. And if you can focus on what that reason is and stay committed and, uh, and diligent in achieving that goal, then the knocks that you get, which as you said, always comes, you'll be prepared and you will have the reserves to pull from in order to continue. We have to continue creating reserves. You know, we think about it in the financial context. Do you have reserves when you, when you have an unexpected event like COVID-19 in order to continue? If you don't have reserves, you might close. You need to create reserves personally in order to overcome the challenges of life. And how do you create those reserves? You think about what your purpose is. You build that reserve so that you're prepared when you get hit. And I've had to do that many times in my life. Um, and it's reading, it's yoga, it's meditation, it's exercise, it's family. Uh, there are so many things that can feed you and help clarify your purpose and also help you build those reserves. Yeah. It's not always easy. Um, <laughs> Uh, as you and I both know, and we're, we're very similar in that uh, we both wake up early. We both, I do martial arts. And to me, that is a way of clearing my mind and uh, the Zen of it and the philosophy of it is as important to me as the physical um, component mm -hmm. uh, of it. And um, getting back up is something that all of us face. Um, and, uh, and you've done it, and you're a role model, uh, really, to so many of us. So, Alfonso, I, I just want to thank you uh, for being on the show. I want to thank you for being a good friend. And I know all of our viewers really appreciate it as well. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. Take care.